Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Optive Podcast. This is a podcast where John Sekatowski, Nick Gibson, and me, Andy Schmidt, discuss some of the hard theological and cultural topics in the Bible, bringing three different perspectives from three different generations. I hope you enjoy. Today, we're back. It's been a couple weeks. We've been busy. Nick just turned 58 today. Big birthday. Um, so that's exciting. John, anything, you, nothing really exciting in your life, except for yeah. that you're getting married in less than a month. Right, you know, besides that, just there's very the little huge. going on. He's busy immunitizing the eschaton, yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah, there's the first, I have no idea what's going on session of this podcast. Um, it's okay, just keep going. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about kind of what's going on in, in our world right now with the George Floyd killing and some of the racial tension in America and how to respond to it as a church. Um, so, uh, yeah, Nick, do you just want to give the, the old, the rundown a little bit? The, the rundown, the rundown, just like, you know, we're three, <laughs> we're three white guys talking about this. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, but I'm, I mean, I'm not going to apologize for that. I mean, you, nobody no. has to listen to this and right. um, there are some white guys that, that might particularly want to listen to this. Um, there are maybe some people who aren't who want to listen to three white guys. See just kind of what's going on in people's heads. I mean, I, I mean, obviously we're all, we're all caught between the being racist positively and being racist negatively. Like it's a little racist to listen to three white guys and think that that's what white guys think. But at the same time, it also is decently likely that, you know, how th- we're grappling with things is how a lot of other people are probably too, because there's a lot of similar similarities between people, even though it's racist to think that how three white guys talk is how white, you know, like there's all these kind of like mixed like problems of these sorts of things, but you know, be it what it is. This is what the three of us are going to say. Mm-hmm. And we are all three white guys, slightly different age. And this is, we're going to say what we think and do it what you want with it. Just, you know, preferably don't be ugly, but whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah, cool. With that being said, I'll just ask the first question that I've written down and, and I will hear, you know, but both, I guess all three of us can answer this one. Um, so it is, what was your first reaction to the uh, killing of George Floyd, the, the policeman in Minneapolis killed George Floyd? If you don't know about that, I mean, it happened probably like a month ago, right? I don't know. Pre- pretty Seems recently. Longer. Seems longer, yeah. but time has been so weird since COVID. Yeah, I think started. it's I think it's been around a month ago. Right. So, what was your guys's initial reaction to this? Um, as well, as, so Nick, coming from being a pastor, your initial reaction. John, you work in the church in Kidsman, and so what is your guys's initial reaction to this? Yeah, I mean, I, so I, I, people should know about me that like I pastored in the South for seven years, um, and I learned all about guns and shooting and use of force and I, i've worked with military people all my life i grew up next to a military base um all my friends almost all of the minority friends i had in my youth parents you know used things that blew other things up for a living and so i've never had like this uh like sort of um there's a certain segment of america that's sort of allergic to all forms of violence of any kind and they just freak out at the mention of the use of any kind of force and i just am not from that background like i I carry handguns. I have a concealed weapon permit. I work with police. I've gone through defense and arrest tactics training. I've been sprayed in the face with pepper spray as part of that training. Like I've done all that stuff. Like, so, so 
I tend to be kind of skeptical when the police just get attacked because that's just my background. I'm kind of, I'm used to people not understanding how policing works. And so mm-hmm. I'm expecting people to be like really ill-informed when they talk about it. Right. So I, so I watched the, the George Floyd video. And at first I was kind of like, yeah, that's not good. Yeah. That's, that's not, yeah, that's, you don't want to do it quite that way. That's, but then as it went on, I just started getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And I just, I wanted to shoot the guy myself. And I just, it was so frustrating. And, and on one level I was, on one level I was glad that it was so clear. Hmm. I was like, okay, this is really clear. This guy did something terrible. It's so obvious. Um, and because of that, I actually didn't think it was going to blow up really big because I thought what was going to happen was it's so clear. Everybody's going to say this is wrong and we're all going to agree. And so it'll be a less of a big deal than other stuff. I, what I didn't realize was this was kind of the example everybody had been waiting for that mm. was so clearly wrong that it could be um, the match that started a forest fire. And so um, I just didn't, I didn't predict very well the social chain chain reaction, but I have the same feeling everybody else had. The fact that I have weapons training or had worked with police and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff didn't, I mean, didn't change my reaction other than it made me more angry because it was an offense against black lives. It was a, an offense against human lives. And it was also an offense against the sacred nature of the authority police carry. Like it was an offense against policing and, and the necessity of the work that those men do men and women do. And, and it's, I mean, something like 20% of the American police force is minority and they all pay for that too. And so just on so many levels, it was so destructive. It's just, yeah. Yeah. John. Yeah. And my initial reaction was, so I, I uh, first saw the video a couple days into this being a thing. Cause I was just not on social media at the time that this was happening. So I found out I was having a discussion with a friend who um, is he's he's white and he's married to a black woman. And so this is really affecting his his family as all this stuff was coming coming out. And he was he was feeling it acutely. And um, as we were just talking and catching up uh, just in our lives, he was like, oh, you know, and the, the George Floyd thing has really been affecting me. And I, I didn't know what that was at the time. So when I when I first watched the video, I felt a um, I think a like a similar reaction to what Nick was saying. Like I just felt as it was going on and on, like I just felt this like sinking feeling just like growing and growing and growing where, where even if, even if something was like, looked like it could have been justified in the very first moments of the altercation, like, right. As it continued to be held, it was like, my goodness, this is, this is not, this is not good. Um, So those are some of my resistance. What'd you say? Especially for the level of resistance. Right. Right. You know, he, where he just didn't, didn't right. seem to be resistant. As somebody who's and, seen a lot of police videos. Okay. I've seen a lot of police videos mm-hmm. in training. And usually people are like trying to kill you. Like they're, they're trying to tear the skin off of your bones and yeah. like bite. Like it's terrible. But in almost all those videos, the person is not in restraints yet. The fight right. is to get them into restraints. Right. Floyd was in restraints already. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it just, it, that's one of the reasons why this was such a wildfire because it was just nothing. There's nothing right. good to say. And I think like seeing the the moment, especially that just, 
that just so struck me was the moment where he goes from obviously conscious to unconscious. Right. And like just goes limp and continues for another another three or four minutes. He's still on on the back of his neck. Um, So I felt um, that was some of my initial reaction um, was watching that. But I I think one thing that I, I did feel is it was initially presented to me in the context of of like um, in the context of racism. So that this was, this was a clearly like when I was talking to the buddy of mine, he was like this, it was like the most obvious racist thing I've ever seen in my life. And I think as I was watching it, I, um, I didn't see that in what was happening. Like I saw really incompetent policing, but I didn't necessarily see in that video, like at least with evidence of the video, I didn't necessarily see that. Um, right. so, you have to impute motives in that video to make it racist. right. That now right. that's not saying that it's not. It wasn't racist. Totally, yeah. totally. It may have been. It was just but, I just didn't see it yeah. in the video. And I, you can I think, see that like in comments and stuff, people like saying, "Look at that sneer on his face. It's like a smirk. He hates black people so much." And you're like, right. "Well, there's a lot of ways to hate other human beings, right? right. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of ways like that. Like one of the reasons I got really attacked the first week when I said I didn't think it had a lot to do with race." Mm-hmm. The, the actual actions of the officer. But the thing is, is like, it's still race. Race still matters because the guy was black and the guy kneeling on him was white. Mm-hmm. You can't, that that's still a racial act, action. Right. By nature, even if it's not racist mm-hmm. in the hardest sense of that term. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. right. I guess. Yeah. And you yeah, don't know, makes... like you don't know enough about that cop to say, cause, yeah. cause race could be a part of his disregard for human life. Right? Totally. I mean, obviously, totally. I think the fact that he saw Floyd as an addict mm-hmm. and because he was so high that like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when I was in college, and I dealt with drunk people. I, I treated them differently than non-drunk people because mm-hmm. they're drunk. And mm-hmm. I, it tended to make me more concerned about their safety. But if I had to deal with a violent one, I, I was less concerned about their safety in a way because you have to handle a drunk person a certain way. And I think it's easy as a police officer to get a little cold because you deal with addicts all the time. Mm-hmm. and people who are high or an altered state of consciousness all the time. And it's easy to get callous towards people that you think are, have made a lot of stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. And by that point, they've also looked, they've, after they arrested him and looked at his ID, they also know he has a record. They've seen his record in their car. You know what I mean? Like they know who they're dealing with. So there's like, this guy's a criminal. He's an addict. Like all these like multifaceted stereotypes are coming up along with all this information that is useful to the police officer. Right. Right. And so there's a strange mixture for the police officer of stereotypes, keeping you alive Mm -hmm. and stereotypes that dehumanize the person that you're dealing with. And those are happening kind of at the same time in real time, fueled with adrenaline. And in this case, fueled with pressures coming from onlookers and people telling them what to do, which I think was actually really detrimental to the situation. Mm hmm knowing how police operate in public. Yeah. Yeah. So that was some of my, that was some of my initial reaction to, to that video was just what was right. Just this, just this sinking feeling as it continued to go on. And, and, and some of, because I knew the context that it was being presented to me, like I, I had an idea of like, okay, what this is going to mean for, for all this stuff because because i got it a couple days in like i had a sense of okay this is going to be this is going to be a big thing yeah yeah Yeah. i i'll give you guys my initial reaction because i so like i first saw it on 
like heard about it on Twitter, which is probably the worst possible way to hear about anything. But like it was all this like, okay, another black person killed and in, in Minneapolis. And like my initial reaction was, well, well my first, if I'm being honest, the first thing that I thought was like, okay, this dude is probably on drugs. Because a lot of times when when these things are presented a certain way where like another a black person gets killed by a policeman – the media will portray it one way where like this policeman just hates black people. But then you'll find out later that the, the guy was on drugs, like charging at the policeman trying to kill him or something like that. And I, that's my initial thoughts were like, Oh yeah, this, this is probably like just, and the Michael Brown incident is probably the most obvious example of that, of the, like, yeah. making a man into a saint who was actively seeking to take the life of the police officer. Or even because the one a, here in a big variety of cases. Right. Or even the one here in Madison. I forget the guy's name. Um, yeah, Tony Robinson. But to, the, yeah. the Tony Robinson one had no witnesses. So, like, with Tony oh, Robinson, right. you're kind of like, well, the guy who lived walks out and tells the story. Yeah. And so right. I, I don't blame African-Americans for being like, well, yeah. I wonder what really happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, right. Right. But, like, in right. with Michael Brown, there were, like, numerous black witnesses who were like, yeah. oh, no, he attacked the dude. He he, he tried to grab yeah. the cop's gun and, like, he would and then forensic report. He was shot in the front. He was shot in both the hand right. and the head, which only happens if your hands out in front of your body. You know, like there were all mm-hmm. these kind of corroborating resources, and yet Michael Brown was still kind of made into a saint. I think yeah. that was the worst thing that could have been done in that situation. Right. You know what so I mean? So that was my yeah, that was and my I think first that 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 painted thing. Every one of these cases for like the next five to seven yeah. years, because for, for yeah. me, like as a white guy who knows about policing and weapons and all that kind of stuff, the Michael Brown case just just destroyed the media's credibility for me. Hmm. And in oh, some ways, yeah. the Obama's administ- the Obama administration's research into black people being mistreated by the police in that area, mm-hmm. and, and the Floyd incident, the, the the George Floyd incident is like literally the most opposite you can get to that. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. the most absolutely obviously clear case right. of misuse of police force. Yeah. Yeah. So like the opposite of you, Nick, when I, then I saw the video and I was like, okay, yeah, this is clearly like, I, I haven't even, I've never, I haven't talked to anybody since then. That's been like, no, the police did the right thing. Like, I think everybody that I've talked to has been like, this is yeah. messed up. He did the wrong thing. And I was like, yeah, dude, this, I mean, he clearly just killed the guy. And so I was like, and so the, I had an opposite viewpoint of Nick and I was like, this is like, initially I was like, dude, this is exactly what's like, like basically like crap's going to hit the fan now and everything's going to go haywire. And that's literally exactly what happened. It's just, there was rioting and, and, uh, there was protesting. Some of it was peaceful. Some of it was rioting. They were destroying, you know, all this stuff, like things, this stuff went absolutely nuts and bonkers. And I think like I, my initial reaction was, was just, I was like, just really frustrated. And then the, every time I went on social media, some, you know, white person from a farm town that I grew up in, in, in Wisconsin is trying to comment on this, acting like they know something about, the black community or about, about policing or about racial injustice. Like they like, which is a later question that we'll get to, but I think it's just over time in the last month, I think it like built up more frustration. And like, I think my initial reaction, if I could put into one word was just like hopelessness. I was just like, dude, this is just like, we're not coming back from this. And right now I still feel that way. in a lot of like you turn on, you, 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 you flip to the news for five seconds and you see, T- someone's tearing down a statue or somebody said this or and it, and it's just like i feel like you know this is just more divisive americans are just being 
you know, pit against each other. And then you have to look at the media and you're like, okay, the media loves this because this drives their ratings and they make money off of this. And so it's like, whether you watch Fox news or CNN, both of them love this because it's great. It's, it's going to, you know, they love ratings. They love money more than they love and, doing and the right even thing. More than money is your reputation as a journalist. The worship, yeah. the worship yeah. that you get as the public voice for something for a community I mean, as a pastor, I know this. Like, I know that, like, when I say certain things, there's certain Christians who are like, yeah, Nick, you speak for us. That's You're so great. You're a great man of God. Mm. And there's something, like, really intoxicating about that. Mm. And if you're, I can you imagine if it, it wasn't a thousand people, but it was, like, 2.4 million people right. in your viewing constituency. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's incredibly yeah. intoxicating. And so it's so hard for news people to just be like, I, right. I want to be a tempering pr- voice mm. in all right. this. It's, mm. it's very hard to do. Yeah. And then I seen like, so the protests started happening in Madison downtown. And, you know, I, I, one night I went down late at night to just see what was going on with a couple of my friends and it was just chaos. And there was a girl that I went to high school with and uh, she's put in prison now because she was like destroying a bunch of buildings. She was all over the news. And like, I went to high school with her. Like I knew her. So like all these emotions and stuff like that was building up inside of me. And I think I'm still trying to deal with them. And I, I think it leads us good into our next, um, into our next question is that like, how should Christians respond to this? Like emotionally, mm-hmm. how should we respond to this? Because immediately everybody hops on socials and they're hopping and they're, everybody's got to say what they think. Everybody's got to, you know, and personally, I don't think that that's the way to go about it. And when we talk about being Christians, like being slow to speak and like figuring out all of what's going on before we start making these comments and all this stuff. And and so like I started to get, you know, really bitter and hateful towards the church immediately, which is like my first reaction anyways. Because people already, talk because a lot of Christians were saying a lot of stuff. Right. They're throwing people. stuff on socials, the things that they have no clue what they're talking about. They're pushing, you know, they're just anything that anybody tells them. They're just like, oh yeah, yeah, that's good. I need to post that. And it's like, okay, if our first reaction as believers is to post things on social media, to me, that seems like we got, we got an issue here. And so I want to, so yeah, I want to ask you guys, like, how do you guys think that Christians, even though we're, we're a month, maybe about a month removed from this, it's still affecting our everyday. And how should we respond to this emotionally and moving forward? How should we respond to this? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that some of the um, that there is some good stuff that has come out about uh, in the Christian community about lament and about like lamenting alongside uh, alongside not only like the the most local uh, the most local version of this so like alongside George Floyd's family but also amongst um, like I, I I think it's it's important to like recognize and um, lament alongside like clearly a lot of a lot of black and brown people are feeling these things even if it's like even if we could like even if if on like further analysis we're like okay maybe somebody is like okay we they shouldn't like things aren't as bad as they seem or like things aren't as bad as like emotionally is being responded to like it still is right now being emotionally responded to in that way um so i think it's i think it's helpful to initially start with okay like let's let's lament that specific situation and let's um be willing to like come alongside the felt pain of people. But I, I think, yeah, I think the thing that is so, that is so quick to happen, like you're saying, Andy, is to, to immediately then go to, okay, what's the, like, what's the action step right now? And, you know, like this is, this dynamic comes up a lot, a lot in relationships, right? Where like somebody 
like one person in a relationship is feeling bad about something and then the the other person comes in and is like okay immediately like how can i how can i help you solve this problem as opposed to like coming alongside and being like being in the emotional space with the person and i think um yeah yeah i just or the converse where the person who's feeling really strongly demands a, a particular solution right. that you don't you may not even agree with right and it feels like an either or but you still have to try to find a way without conceding their argument, mm-hmm. the feel, you know, like there's this old saying in counseling: feelings for feelings and facts for facts. Right. right. Like I was going to ask about that. You respond with feelings. I was going to ask about that because it's like there's this right. There's a saying. There's a Ben Shapiro saying: the facts don't care about your feelings. And, and, they, and then I, there's, I agree with that. They don't. Right. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. and but then there's the other part. You know, of like, yes, black people feel a certain way. And you can't discredit the way that they feel just because, in my opinion, it doesn't factually add up that the entire system is racist and it all is going against black people and that white people are trying to put black people down and all white people are racist in some ways. There's microaggressions and all these crazy things. In my opinion, I think it's I think it's that seems to be a way too simplistic answer to such a complex issue. And as believers, for us to just when you say come alongside i know that there were these like uh you know i can't remember what what the name of the thing was uh but whatever like christians coming alongside the black community we should definitely care about their feelings but in my opinion i feel like it we start to compromise then when nick said in the earlier podcast like grace without truth is appeasement Mm -hmm. and it feels like as believers what we started to do is started to appease the the black community in the black church and when they say things like that talking about how you know everything is systematically set up against them or and we'll talk about white privilege later um but how white people are privileged like just inherently privileged and like how statistically a lot of that type of stuff doesn't really add up uh white people are at least least in proportion in proportion right i think part of the issue here is not you know it's kind of like if you say, "Do I con- does Nick contribute negatively to the problems in his marriage?" Well, that's a binary question. It's a yes or no answer, and the answer is, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. Of course, I contribute to the negative stuff in my marriage and my family. Yes, of course, but that's not a very interesting fact. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, yeah. we already knew that because I was a human, right? The, the mm-hmm. issue is, in what ways, in what proportion, right? Creating what dynamics leading to what outcomes, Mm -hmm. creating what long-term dysfunctions, right? Those are all the questions that matter if what you want is a solution. And they're specific to your individual situation as well. They're not specific to the next person's marriage and the next person's and the next person's. Everybody's different. Yeah, but I would generalize. I would generalize most of these things. Like if somebody says, is there white privilege? I always start with saying, well, yeah. That's not the like, question. The question is how much and where and in what ways and how determinative is it in the lives of black people and so on. Or how much hmm. how much of this is white supremacy and how much of this is <clears throat> a dysfunction within the underclass, the American underclass. Well, that's yeah, I would say question. it's more of a, a class. It's so, a class race. Not I don't I, – I see – I get – personally and i'm not i don't i hate to say this because it sounds i I feel like it sounds kind of lame but like i think a lot of people that i've talked to and me myself i get like offended when people say that you have white privilege because that's just basically saying like it's just insulting like i have white privilege because i was born white and for some reason 
that puts me above other people because I know a lot of black people. I had black friends in, in high school who basically had a free ride to college because their dads were in the NFL. If that's not privilege, then I don't know what is. And so I think it's situational. It's more class-based than it is race-based. And people want to put a stamp on it, say, you have white privilege. You need to know, you know, you need to do something about it. Well, no, that's yeah. situational. So part of the issue is part of the issue is, is that the 90% or 95% of Americans, even college-educated Madisonians and all that, don't have the capacity to talk about any of these things at the level of analysis that's helpful. Right. And so they don't know what to say. Like, yeah, white privilege is a thing. There's no question about that. The, the problem is there's, there's probably 15,000 kinds of privilege a human being can have mm-hmm. relative to other human beings. That That is advantages that they have in the total human, total human societal interaction in which they have advantage over another group relative to that one thing. So, for example, if you weren't born yet, right, and I said, you're going to be born randomly as one race in America. You can pick any race you want. You're going to be born randomly into a family of one race in America. Which would you pick? Well, a lot of people pick white, right? And now some people will be like, well, technically Indians make the highest income. I want to be Indian or Chinese or maybe. Okay. But like, a I lot would of people pick would be, Asian, bro. I'm trying to right, make the Right. But if you money. had to pick between white and black, there's no question in my mind I would pick white. Well, right. But see how you've already just completely eradicated like all the other races and made it into a black and white thing. That's what frustrates. Me. Right. But black people are saying it's black people saying white people have white privilege for the most part. Right. They're saying relative to us in America, both historically and the present, there is there is some sort of privilege that white people have. That's true. There's also weight privilege and strength privilege and health privilege and genetics privilege and like how good your teeth are privilege. Like there's a bazillion different. I mean. For women, like what their figure looks like is an enormous sure. privilege. Like if you are sure. a hot yeah. woman, I don't care what color you are, you have an enormous advantage over a fat sure. woman. Yeah. Period. Full sure. stop. No question. Mm-hmm. If you're a yeah. hot woman, your life is made for you. Period. But instead if, of calling if you that make certain privilege. decisions, if you make certain, you can still screw your life up. There's a lot of pretty women who live totally wrecked lives because they couldn't leverage their privilege, right? And so, the, I mean, the reality is, I mean, if you think about this in it, with any kind of clarity, right? Every black person in America is enormously privileged relative to people who lived 200 years ago, mm-hmm. by definition, right? right. You're, okay. you're born black in America. You're more privileged than King Solomon in a way, in that there's antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Right. But so like there's all these different kinds of privilege. I don't think as a white person, you should be like, well, there is a white privilege. No, I mean, like relatively speaking to African-Americans in the United States, in most places, relative to most things, there's probably some privilege to it. The question is, is it the is it the issue and is it decisive to outcomes and is it the right thing for us to focus on? Those are the important questions. And yeah. so white people get upset when a black person basically says, the only reason you amounted to anything in this world is because you're white. And the only yeah. reason why I haven't amounted to more is because I'm black. White people, I think, find that intrinsically offensive because it's a totalizing interpretation of what is called white privilege, right? I don't think that's defensible. I don't think you can defend that. White privilege is not the only factor. And it's and it's probably in like, there's a lot of black leaders like John McWhorter and Jason Riley and Glenn Lowry and Thomas Sowell who argue, like you said before, it's, it's empirically a fact that that's not the biggest factor, but is it a meaningful factor? Is it a factor that matters to people? I think it is. Yeah. At least in if some it, things. 
but just because it matters to people doesn't mean that it should matter to us as believers. And I think this is where it gets frustrating because if our viewpoint starts to align with what the rest of the world is saying, I start to get red flags in my head. When I hear pastors go up on stages on Sundays and talk about your white privilege and this and that, mm-hmm. and then I turn on CNN and Fox News and they're talking about the same thing, I'm like, okay, that's not good. Like if I want to hear about white privilege, I'm going to watch the news. If I want to hear about how to respond to this as a Christian in a broken world, our solution and our things that we're focusing on, in my opinion, and I think it should be a little bit different than what the rest of the world is doing. And that's where it gets – that's sure. why it's – Sure, but don't yeah. you think – so would you classify racism as a sin? Abs- I mean absolutely, yeah. It's, 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 it's sin like basically just built upon pride. Right. And I right. it's a, it's a version that. of another kind of sin, right? That is it's it's like yeah. pride and other kinds of sins rooted yeah. in race, right? So it's a sin. So it, now it's other things too. It's a sociological phenomenon, it's all the other sort of things. But it's not yeah. less than a sin, right? Now, if that's the case, where in this world that you live in is it going to be dealt with as a sin, like as a spiritual problem and as a moral bankruptcy relative to this to the sacred value of human beings before God? And the way God wants us to work together towards towards um, doing his will on earth as it's done in heaven as much as we can so that at least we don't have racism in the church. Well, I would ask then CNN's how many to do that. Fox News is. Gonna no, right. It. Totally. Tucker Carlson is not going to be like, you know, what the real problem here is, is the sin of racism. Yeah. Ever, and, a bo- bo- you know, every way. It functions, right? But how so many people the in the church, like how many people in the American church or more specifically our church, High Point Church, do you know that are racist? Like I grew up in a small Everyone, town. hundred percent. I don't do it. See, I, it depends on the – see, see it, it all it, – you know, there was this one – there was this radio host, a Christian apologist years, years ago that Ravi Zacharias used to listen to. And he would talk about it in talks. He'd say – you know, whenever somebody would ask a question on the radio, he would start his answer with, it all depends on what you mean by mm. something in their question. So, I mean, part of the problem with all the stuff that's going on is n- people don't know what you mean by stuff, right? So when somebody says racism, yeah. well, what does that mean? Right? Like all human beings favor their in-group over out-group. Like it's a, it's a pre-conscious action of all human beings. In that sense, everyone's racist, like in that way, a little bit. Now, most people believe that in our conscious mind, we can override our intuitive assumptions of like of, of our thinking shortcuts that are stereotypes and, and that favor our in-groups. And so our conscious mind can overcome the natural racism of our more unconscious, more instinctual mind. So we're not racist. Other right. people would say, no, because you have that internal intrinsic favor of your in-group, that is implicit bias. And it gets into your conscious thinking in ways you don't totally understand. That's why there's all this talk about implicit bias now. They're like, look, it affects you even though you don't know it's affecting you. Mm-hmm. Hence studies like on resumes where like if you whiten up your resume, you get you get a interview more often. And it doesn't matter if the company is like totally like super blue, progressive, whatever. You still get that same racism effect. Why? Because hmm. progressives still have the same instinctual racism. And if that's affecting your conscious thinking without you knowing about it, well, then it's an issue. But that doesn't mean that everybody's a racist, meaning they do – they do actions based on the belief that one race is superior to the other and that they have the power to do actions that dis- disenfranchise and discourage or or do something against another race as a racial actor. If you ask me if everybody's racism on that definition, I say, of course not. 
But like even somebody like Ibram Kendi, I think is how you say his name, who wrote the book How to Be an Anti-Racist, who's like super on the left. He, he, he said in one of his interviews recently, he's like, I mean, people can be racist and anti-racist like in the same day. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, historically, people have said racist and anti-racist things in the same paragraph. Mm-hmm. He's like, we're just too complicated a creature. Just be like, he's a racist. He's not a racist. To be right. a racist, he said, you should be doing racist things pretty consistently and unrepentantly in a bigoted fashion, meaning you should know better and you choose not to know better. If See, that's always been the definition of racist. And by that definition, I think very few white people are racists. So it all depends right, then, on what you mean by these words, white privilege, white supremacy, right. racist, etc. Right. And I think that goes both ways, though. And I think as Christians, we need to look at this not only from that white people are racist, because you hear a lot of people say like, well, they'll refer to reverse racism as like black people. No, racism isn't uh, like this, not for only one race and another. And I think, I think racism, like there's black people that are racist to white people. And I think that that's another thing. Like, I agree with what you just said, Nick, but the problem is that at that right now in America, that is just being totally just put on the white community and being like, you guys are all racist and whatever. And, or you ra- you do racist things. And like, that's why I think that this by, is more by the American left. That's being, being done by the American left. Right. I think the American right would say something like, no, we're not. Which is, and you black people have a lot of dysfunctions and you don't want to face them. So you call us racist. Right. Yeah. And I don't, but I, I think, don't think that that argument is too much better than the, well, I think that it seems that, that when we talk, when, when scripture, when you hear Jesus talk about like, you know, Jesus doesn't blame everybody else for other, for your problems. Like he, that's not one of his main things when he's walking around, he's like, okay, you're going to follow me. And what we're going to do is we're going to blame everybody for the situation that you're in right now. He first tells people to look at, into their own hearts and fix themselves. And yeah, that's, that's if operative, not analysis, right? So Jesus, Jesus, like, even when people kill you in my name, here's how you're going to behave. That's operative, not analytical. He would, if you ask Jesus, Jesus, are the people who are going to kill us in your name doing something that's morally reprehensible that they would repent of? He should be, he'd be like, of course. Yeah. Of course, but you're still going to carry yourself a certain way. Similarly, you know, black people yeah. if you ask a black pastor, how should a black person behave? You know, they'd be like, look, we got to do our thing. But like, right. man, y- if you're doing stuff to hurt us, you should stop. Mm-hmm. Jesus yeah. isn't against that. In fact, there's, there's plenty no, of places where no. Jesus attacks oppressors and tells them they shouldn't be doing that. But you're right. He still tells those who receive oppression to overcome it in his name and to have a different kind of attitude about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm not you, saying that that's Jesus why progressives said, can't heal us because they have the right. wrong solution. But that doesn't mean they have the, the a comp- that doesn't mean that their diagnosis of the problem is completely wrong. I think it's just yeah. way out of proportion, personally. Mm-hmm. But I think that's true of the conser- the the standard conservative argument too. I think it's I think it tends to be especially among white people who are feeling defensive right now. It's really easy to get that out of proportion too, and to think that all black people's problems have to do with pathologies within the black community. That, and there's no downward pressure from any kind of oppressive anything. And I, I think that's overblown too. Right. But I think – so then as – so then going into kind of our, one of our questions, I'm not even going in order anymore. Um, as the church then, like the body of Christ, how should we respond on our local level and like as the big C um, church – with our resources and with our time, like how do we respond to this? Because it feels like 
there's been a lot of talk in the last month. Talk about the race and talk about this. And it's good. You got to talk through things. You got to talk through, you know, when I'm going through stuff, I call John and I talk through mm-hmm. it. But then John says, okay, now, Andy, you're struggling with sexual sin. What's the next step? We're going to, we're going to, you're not going to have internet on your phone. Whatever it is, is the next step. We have right. to take action now. And I feel like as a church, we want to just sit here. It feels like we want to just sit here and keep talking about it and complaining about it mm-hmm. because doing the real work is going to be harder than doing that. And so what do we do? What do we, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the question, right? I mean, that's, that's hopefully what the, what the talking is, is going toward. And I think, um, I do think that something that's that's so tricky about these situations is is I mean even even as Nick touched on just just a little bit in what he was talking about like the the problems are so complex and so nuanced and there isn't just a like there aren't just simple solutions to these kinds of things and there aren't just like okay we we can talk for a moment and then just say you know okay our solution is going to be this this single axis thing. Um, so I I do think, I mean, I think a thing that will help in, in the beginning of this is like, we need to get, like, we need to actually get clear on what are the sorts of things that are causing the problems. And then what are the sort of thing? I mean, so this is, this is, I guess, more, more like sociological than it is within the church necessarily, but, but like, what are, what are the actual things that are happening as best we can tell and what are the things that are most effective like per per effort unit or like per dollar like what are the sort of things that we can that we can do and can focus on that are actually going to make the kinds of changes that we're looking to looking for as opposed to what are the sort of changes that we just want to emotionally react towards because they they feel like they would feel the best in the in a moment of in a moment of pain or in a moment of struggle um so i think I think doing the hard work of looking at the truth is one of the most important things that we can do during this time is like as best we can getting, getting like hard, hard data and like hard, like even, even, um, even like stories of people's personal experience are still like a form of a form of hard data as they, as they pertain to like, um, what they've actually gone through. Um, but I think, I think that's that's some of the first stuff some of the first stuff that that we can do yeah i I think if we look at how progressives and conservatives are acting i don't want to create a moral equivalency so i mean if you if you think it's one way or the other it's fine i probably whichever one you think whatever you think you belong to you think is acting a little better but i I think that a clear-minded christian would say a couple things one is i don't believe that the public conversation is going to produce true goods because it's not honest Mm mm-hmm it's not really interested in real science. Like so the science, the science in a number of these like bleeding heart issues is so corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's so I, I think that's a huge problem because we're not going to get to the level of analysis we need to when our science is so interested and it's a, it's a real problem. Um, secondly, we're not having the kind of conversations you would have to have to have a solution. We're having power-based conversations. We're not having inter- interrogative science. You know, quote science that everyone wants to say that they're, part, they're they're on the side of science and data. Well, science-based discussions aren't afraid to really look at anything. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to look at any possibility, research it disinterestedly, right? And then, based on that data, then take their philosophy and their morality. See, the, the problem with with secular 
Madisonians is, is that they believe science tells us what we should do, which is totally false. Mm-hmm. Science can, tells us what we can do, but it doesn't tell us what we should do, right? And so w- without allowing the gospel or a Christian understanding of the human person to enter into the conversation about what needs to happen, there's not going to be a solution. Right. Human beings aren't toasters where if you like, you like work all the little things right, they're going to become what you want them to be or they're going to stop doing what you want them to stop doing. I mean, nudging people sociologically can help them drink smaller sodas, but it's not going to truly change what human character is capable of and how people are formed culturally and societally. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think the church has to take this seriously because our culture is not fixing this. I don't care how woke everybody gets. Unless you deal with things at the proper level of analysis, and unless you start from a clear understanding of human nature, they're just going to come up with another extremely expensive thing to do that's going to create a slightly different kind of tyranny and is not ultimately going to have to help the people that have been targeted other than to transfer wealth to them, which will probably be more detrimental to their lives rather than better. Mm-hmm. So I, I think on some level the church has to, but on the, at the same time, I, I don't think that the answer is, well, blame black people. <laughs> That's not the answer either. Right. And, and so cr- Christians have to be able to depart from, do a couple things. One, we have to not be, um, not be bendable. Hmm. Like, there's so like my I've talked to so many teenagers are kind of like I just have to say these things because if I don't I'll get destroyed like they no, don't screw those people like I mean Christian, you might get destroyed yeah but oh, you, you will get that, destroyed. that's you will get gonna destroyed. happen yeah right Christians are gonna have to start being themselves the world be damned like yeah you know I, I pretending I just think that that's foolish I think you need to do that and then secondly I think we have to stop bearing false witness against our neighbors hmm. God detests a false witness the Bible says. And so we have to stop just saying stuff because it's popular when it isn't true. Yeah. Right. And then we have to be curious about the solution and personal about it. Mm. Like, I think it's, I think a lot of Christians are waking up to the fact that they're not racists in the old sense of the word, but they're also not race interested. They're not anti-racist. They're, they are in some ways privileged in ways they didn't really understand. And they don't really understand what it's like to be black in America and all those things could be nourishing to them. And it's, it's worth, it's worth going on this journey, even if it's just to build some solidarity with our non-white brothers and sisters, you know? And so I also think some of the ecumenical work we're doing as a church to like reach out to other churches, get to know other people at other churches, better partner with those churches, try some of the stuff they want to do. So there's stuff some of my black friends want to do that. I just don't think it's going to work at all, but I'm okay with funding it for a a certain amount of time for us to find out if it works Mm -hmm. because one, I could be wrong and maybe it works or B if I'm right and we find out it doesn't work, then we've all learned something together. Mm -hmm. And so now we can say, okay, then what's the third thing? Cause like science, science is supposed to be about trying stuff and then figuring out what works. Mm -hmm. Right. But our, so we're doing so much social engineering on the basis of ideology Mm -hmm. that we're not really doing it on the basis of philosophy. Right. Right. It's not really scientific, even though we, we believe we're such scientific people. I mean, philosophy is the love of wisdom. It's conforming the mind to reality. Ideology is the reverse. It's you have an idea and you want to conform reality to your idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And we should be lovers of philosophy, not ideology. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's the best way to def- ideology. Obviously can be defined a lot of different ways, some ways positively, 
But ideology as the opposite of philosophy, I think is one of the things that we're experiencing really powerfully. And Christians can reject that. Christians could be about loving the truth on just so many levels. But you're going to, but you can't do it unless you can stand up to being bullied. Mm-hmm. Right. Because and everybody I, wants a tribe, right? And if you don't want to follow the progressive thing, you'll be a conservative. If you don't want to be, you know, you'll, or if you want to be liked by people, you'll be a progressive. And Christians just, they're going to have to not get co-opted. Mm-hmm. It's a big thing. I think, so when I've been talking to people about this this last month, and we talk about like solutions or whatever, um, like people get frustrated when I say this. I want to get your guys' opinion on it. I jo- I've talked to John about it a little bit. Like I think that like a good starting point would be for Christians to just start sharing the gospel in its entirety. And that's how, and people all I get the same come back every time is that's too simplistic that you, that can't just be the answer. And I wonder like if it was so simplistic, wouldn't we be doing it already? Because I think about like the gospel, like there's things that we could do. Yeah. We could fund different programs and we could do different things like, like that stuff, that stuff could work. But like what each and every individual, you know, there's basically one thing in scripture that's not really controversial at all to like 99% of Christians. You know, the, the whole thing about like who can be a pastor or, or that stuff, that can be controversial, you know. But the one thing that's really not is like that Jesus called us all to share the gospel and go make disciples. And I'm wondering like, it's frustrating because at church, even at High Point Church, like I don't hear that message being preached often. When and when, when I listen to other churches and what other pastors say, it's not like, "Hey, how about we get off our butts and we go, we go meet with the black community, we go talk, we go make friends with them, we go play basketball, we go do things with them, like we we do what they want to do while sharing our faith and like just sharing the gospel." People like I don't know. It sounds simplistic, but I don't think it's as simplistic as I'm as it's sounding. Because I, if it was, people would be doing it. I think it all depends on what you mean by the the whole gospel. Because I think you're right. careful to say that the whole gospel. Because yeah. I've had black leaders say, "I wonder if the white church believes in the same God we do." Right. And so no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. You know they're struggling with that. So I mean, I, I think one, yeah, we need to preach the gospel. I think we also need to be growing in our ability to articulate it. Mm -hmm. And part of that is that it reaches and touches the social concerns that people have. I mean, I think that's what one of the things Paul was doing in Ephesians. I mean, he was trying to tell them, look, if you understand the gospel, right, it's going to change your whole society. It's going to change at least a society within the church. Like it's going to change the dividing walls of hostility. It's going to, you know, this was true in the church in Antioch. I mean, Antioch was a city divided by the Romans into 13 ghettos because they didn't want people mixing because they realized from everybody they'd ever conquered that mixing ethnicities just created riots mm-hmm. when people just hate each other. And yet the church in Acts 13 was this multi-ethnic church that loved each other and sent people out to the nations. Like that's the difference, mm-hmm. right? That's the whole gospel. And I, and you just, churches don't, churches don't, churches like to preach the gospel of justification, Believe in Jesus, he'll save you from your sins, he'll forgive you, and you'll go to heaven when you die. But the, the gospel of, of salvation, the, the gospel of justification, is supposed to lead to the gospel of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Which is not immanentizing the eschaton that we can make we can make the millennium, like the reign of the total reign of Christ happen right now in the imminent. 
but it's that we're always approximating it in our lives. We're like, that's the work, the work Christians are doing is proclaiming the kingdom, mm-hmm. but also approximating the kingdom. And if the kingdom is a place where racism is no more, then in our lives and in our communities and where we exert influence, we want to be approximating that aspect of the kingdom that racism is no more mm-hmm. in all its forms. Because not only are we not openly racist, but we are passionately, inclusively loving of all peoples. Mm-hmm. And we want the best for everyone we come in contact with. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I th- well, I think of the oh yeah. I guess we know the story of. Uh, I, I might get this wrong, but I I know what I'm talking about. Matt. The, the woman <laughs> at the well, right? Um, who? Oh, gosh, she's from a, she, she's, she's a different a uh, nationality, right? Samaritan woman at the well, right? And how Jesus like really didn't he like went up to her and spoke to her. And and in that time, that was very controversial as she was a woman and she was a Samaritan woman Mm -hmm. and how Jesus didn't really give any cares to that. The fact that he shouldn't be talking to her and he just did it. And I think like that, when I say the entire gospel, I think about that and like, like it might be uncomfortable. I know a lot of white people at high point, a lot of white people in general, like if they went into Princeton club basketball here in Madison, which is we play basketball at the Princeton Club workout facility. If they went in there during basketball hours, it's a lot of black people. And I think a lot of them would feel very uncomfortable and they might leave because it's a different atmosphere. First time I ever walked in there, there was two guys fist fighting and it was, I thought it was amazing. This is, this is great. And so I, but I think as Christians, like we got to kind of go into this with like, a, a, like you're, you're going to feel uncomfortable when you get into a different a situation. You know, mm-hmm. I hung out with a bunch of Hispanics when I played soccer and like they would they would just talk trash about me in Spanish. I had no clue what they were saying, but they were joking around. It was fun. And sometimes I felt uncomfortable. I think that we have to like get used to feeling uncomfortable. Don't give up who we are uh, as believers. And I think like Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, like it didn't seem like he cared so much about that she was a Samaritan, that she was a woman. He cared a lot that she was a human being that needed to know the gospel. Mm-hmm. And the more that we like obsess over these racial things in our heads of what do they think about me and this and that, that can kind of push us away from actually making any advancements towards reconciliation within the races of the church. And I think as believers, we need to just kind of not care in a way and just go do it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think that is that is something that's that's true, is like in a lot of these discussions, there is kind of this increasing sense of of sort of like of of like white fear of like, okay, I if I want to be if I want to be as quote unquote like woke or aware or like sensitive as possible, then it creates this sense of, I think, increasing uncomfortability in order to like enter those kinds of situations because it feels like it can feel like a landmine that like at every, at every turn, like if I say something that's a little bit off or a little bit wrong, then it's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be like cast out. Like I'm going to be turned into a pariah. And I think, um, I think you're, I think you're right that it's, it's important it is helpful to come into those situations with um, with some of that, like with some of that fear removed. And I think you're right too, Andy, that, that there is something important about f- for sure about sharing the gospel of justification or the gospel of sanctification or the gospel of um, salvation insofar as like, I mean, one, one thing that it's doing amongst obviously many other things is it is, it is getting people onto hopefully, or at least beginning to get them onto the same side of, 
of what a human being is. And I think um, as we look at as we look at solutions, like assuming the Christian worldview is correct, which I think we can assume, like the 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 ways that the the research and the data that we're finding interact with that view of what a human is is the is the, like is the place where solutions are going to be found. And so, insofar as more people can be can be brought on board to that view of what a human being is, I think you're I think you're right that like sharing the gospel is is obviously like a really important part of the solution. And I think another thing that I just thought of is that like I mean you guys know this because you know me, but like I'm constantly saying things that are just so stupid. <laughs> and like like you know, there's like I've had situations literally with like Nick's family, with John, like where I just said something and I haven't realized that it affected somebody at all for like weeks and i'm just like whatever and i I do that all the time and i'm you know i'm trying to work on it but i think that one thing that i found in that is that like people are much more forgiving than i think that they are and like you know i'm constantly saying stupid things like i get that but like when i go back and somebody will say hey dude like you said this thing and it like really hurt me and i'll be like oh crap like i didn't even realize that i said that they're not like okay now I don't ever want to talk to you again and I hate your guts. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they say that and I'm like, okay, cool. But a lot of times within the church, I've found that they'll be like, listen, like I forgive you and just like try to think like they're just calling me out a little bit. And I think that what you'll find even in non-Christian circles is a lot of people are much more forgiving. If you make a mistake and if you say something stupid around some black people or, or his, a group of Hispanics or whoever you're around, even around white people, I, you know, I, if, most of the time they're going to be like, he just said something dumb. He's a human being or she said something dumb. She's a human being. Who cares? I think that that also like kind of puts me at ease sometimes with not going into situations and being so nervous. If I say something wrong, people are going to hate me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, it, that could right. be helpful. I mean, so the question here is like, what what is the thing that's controlling your language? Is the thing that's controlling your language all of the individual rules that you're trying to follow at the same time in unison? And so you're trapped in this place in your mind of like never yeah. being able to sort out and apply those to a particular situation. Or is the thing that's controlling that's controlling your speech, your character and like right you're gonna obviously you're gonna like if 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 it relies on human character there are going to be momentary gaffes like there's going to be there's going to be times where it's problems but but i think the um like as our character is formed and hopefully formed correctly towards towards loving people and having humility and um and being quick to to repent and apologize in in situations that require it like that is going to that is going to create situations like you're saying, Andy, where like people are going to be um, more willing to be to be forgiving if you're willing to honestly repent of those things, as opposed right. to yeah, as opposed to like right this sense of I need to I need to know all of the rules that govern every situ that govern every conversation, and I I better have them in right. line at every moment. Um, right. Yeah, I think that's. In this conversation that we're having now, I guarantee you I've offended somebody in some way. There's like a 100% chance. But yeah, I know I that – I think it's somewhere around 100%. <laughs> more, but but I, mean, I also only know – But if you get less than two people to listen to the podcast, maybe it would be lower. 
yeah, which is hard now because we're we're famous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I but I think that like I I do that with an understanding of like sometimes I miss like you know I just think people are more forgiving, especially in the church, and so yeah, I think. Especially if you're a one-on-one and they don't have to perform in front of other people, mm-hmm. but yeah. also, yeah, people are just, people don't want to be super wokies, you know, like they, on some, on some level they do, but you, you'd gotta, you just gotta learn to spot the people for whom their politics is their identity. Yeah. You know, cause there's a lot of people on, on all kinds of sides of the aisle who believe certain things very strongly, but their politics isn't their identity. And so when yeah. you say something against it, they don't have to attack you like their very self is at stake. Yeah, huh? Yeah, which is how I was. <laughs> I mean, maybe still am a little bit, but I, I try not to be that way as much. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think it's okay to believe your politics strongly, especially if it's rooted in knowledge. Um, but the yeah. problem, you know, even even like I have some very strong political beliefs, but I still recognize that we live in a time where what do you, what can you know? Maybe two percent of all human knowledge. If you're like a very intelligent, well-read person. <laughs> right. And and most of that knowledge that you would know, you knew you know because someone else told you, not because you did the research or something yourself. Yeah. So even most of what you know, you don't know, know like in the right. yeah. And so like huh. you're everyone's like relative to the knowledge available, an idiot. So like even if I believe certain concepts very clearly, alternative concepts could be true. There's so many things that can be true at the same time. Like when I talk, yeah. when I've talked with people about. Um, dysfunctional stuff happening with the with the American underclass, which disproportionately affects affects African Americans, that really doesn't make issues of systemic racism not true. There's it's just another problem. You know that's it's just what part of what makes right. this complex. So, so I think I think part of this is like so. I mean, I was thinking I was thinking last night as I was praying through my birthday coming up. You know, God was this year pleasing to you? Has have these forty three years been pleasing to you? and 58 58 sorry yeah and and i and the the verse that came to mind was the verse in micah 6 8 where, where god says that what god requires of us is to act do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with god and and those are the things that came to mind is is that am i acting justly in my life each day in all of my actions am i do i do i not just act mercifully but do i actually love mercy mm. right he says do justly love mercy that is, is, is giving people mercy something i love to do it comes out of an adoration of mercy itself i love the showing of mercy and so i want to show mercy to people and then do i do i walk humbly like is it is it pervasive in my life that as i walk through my life humility is always with me right before god and when those three things are operative i mean I, there's a lot of godliness that flows and, and remember all three of those things are kind of social Mm-hmm. because it's it's a it's a it's a it's a bit of a communitarian image of godliness and i think that every christian needs to keep looking for those things am i acting justly not just in response in response to social social applications of racism but also not bearing false witness against your neighbor attacking somebody because they said the wrong thing can be just as unjust as being part of a structure of systemic racism or something like that mm-hmm. or more in that the bible explicitly attacks one five or six times and um mentions the other only obliquely makes sense yeah so i think i guess the last question um is go, now going forward i think for people who are listening to this podcast like how should how should we then going forward from this 
like what should we do and like how should we act how should we be thinking what are some things that are applicable like how can we apply some some things to our lives for the for forever um and how can we learn from the situation and as the church like what can we do moving forward i'm curious to hear John, i'm curious everything? to hear what you have to say nick well that's 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 proportionately the answer is proportionately related to what where you were before hmm. right so if before george floyd was killed you were in utter slumber in relationship to the dynamics between black and white churches black and white people in america how black people feel about their place in the country and whether or not they have a full stake in their society and so on and then all of a sudden, like you just got woken up to it, like the Watts riots in the 60s, and you're like, oh my gosh, what the heck is going on? Then how we should change from here is, I mean, you probably need to go through a certain amount of catharsis. Like you need to be like, okay, wait, what the heck is going on? And you may have to learn a bunch of stuff about what's been going on and what is going on in American life and how people feel and what that means and all that kind of thing, right? If that wasn't a mystery to you beforehand, then you may just need to keep doing what you were doing. You know, like we were already involved in the education of minority students. We were already involved in supporting African, like at the, when we were at the March a couple Sundays ago, led by the African-American churches, there was one really great Christian lady who said some things that were a little radical, but, um, but one thing she said is like, you know, white churches, you should pay for black churches, like their buildings. And, you know, it would be nothing for you to, you know, pay the whole mortgage. And I don't think she understands what budgets look like at white churches. Um, but we, we've, to the tunes of tens of thousands of dollars, we have paid for the buildings of black churches in this church. You know, fixing roofs and buying carpets and helping people get in buildings and paying for all kinds of stuff. One of the reasons why we haven't done more of that is because the churches that we've supported and invested in have asked us to do something else with our tens of thousands of dollars that they needed more. Right? But we've been we've been involved with non-white churches for years. So, yeah, I mean, this changes things a little bit in that maybe the church is more motivated. But, like, like I, this isn't a wake-up call for me. Yeah. I've literally, I mean, Lexi and I sang, and we were the only white people in a gospel choir in college. I mean, I have a, I have a black goddaughter. Like, I was there for her birth. Like, I babysat her when she was an infant so her mom could finish her student teaching. While I was, like, trying to study for my classes, I had this black baby with me all over campus. Because from the very beginning at my college— black people and white people were brought together in the gospel in the Christian fellowships because people who'd come to faith in Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York city were going to college with people like me. And so we were brought together. And so we were trying to figure out how to love each other. And so like one of my, be- my, be- probably my best male friend in college was, was Haitian black from New York city. And so like, I'm like, this isn't a new thing for me, right? I'm learning more. I really am learning more now. And part of it is just like with all the language change, I have to keep updating stuff. I know, and I'm having helpful conversations. I'm going deeper. But I think the church has to think proportionately about where it's been. I think if, it, if you feel like you're part of a church or you're a Christian who's been sleeping on this, then, yeah, you probably need to wake up. It's a big thing for so many of our brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. But you also need to recognize that the answers that are being floated oftentimes just aren't the answers. Many, many of the answers that are being floated for the solution to this problem are toxic. And they will further poison our brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't white and who are white. And I'm not going to be party to them. And I'm, I'm ho- hoping that the church is going to be party to non-toxic, real helpful solutions for people 
thing, things that we know work, and also things that preach the gospel. Like one of the reasons I'm for Christian education in these in, in voucher based choice schools is because it allows these students to be in different kinds of educational environments and learn the gospel mm-hmm. and be taught the gospel. Because I think I do think different pedagogical methods are necessary for urban kids. I think that there's real scientific research being done in the educational community that's coming up with methods of teaching that are helpful for kids that are coming out of the underclass. But at the same time, I also believe in the whole human person and that without a full grounding foundationally in what it means to be a human person, who Christ is, how we're saved, how that should develop our character, those pedagogical methods are not going to save these kids. They're going to help them. But Jesus can save them holistically speaking. And I think if we bring together some of the best of the knowledge that everybody's working on with the eternal knowledge of Christ, that we could do some real good. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it means we have to be very intentional about being one church in the city among all the races, which means in particular that Christians, especially Christians in leadership are going to have to spend a significant amount of time building close relationships of very deep trust Mm -hmm. Because I believe that government is the wrong way to accomplish things because government just, I, I believe government structures usually destroy trust hmm. between neighbors. And I believe that relating through voluntary organizations that you create apart from the government so that there is no function of power, right? only right. the voluntary association of love actually produces the kind of enrichment that is necessary. And I think in our society, we've lost so much of civil society, so little is left. On one level, that's actually a huge opportunity for the church. The church is one of the only institutions of civil society, that is, between the individual and the whole, of the, as it were expressed in the government, in which people interact with each other for the good of each other to increase their human and social capital through a voluntary association. The churches were the only ones left. And so to the extent to which we are positioned there, there is an unbelievable amount of good we can do mm-hmm. in the lives of people. So I'm excited about that possibility that God could create a great revival through it. But it, but if I just go, if I just go, oh, right, white privilege is stupid. It's no, it's not gonna work. I gotta sit down with my black friends and I gotta decide what we all think white privilege means, proportionally how big a deal it is. And then, but for most of my black friends, I'm like, do you think, do you think just talking about white privilege is gonna make a big difference? They're like, no. I was like, well, what do you want to do? And they're like. Uh, we want to work with black entrepreneurs, help them start businesses and make those businesses go better. We want to get people access to capital if they have approved business plans. We want to build um, schooling practices that help our kids be treated as learners. We want to, like, they have all these, like, structural and functional plans that are not bad. They're good. They're decently good plans. Even the people who want to defund the police, they don't literally want to, like, make it so there's no police. They want to take some things that the police do and get other people to do them so that the police can be more focused, right? And have other things handled by like social workers, which may be a terrible idea. I'm not really sure yet. I haven't seen a plan that I could say I like or I don't like. Right now, it's still pretty vague. Mm-hmm. But even even the defund the police movement, there are some kind of like people that are kind of out there, that really radical, who literally mean they want the police completely defunded. I don't but, think it's some people, Nick. I think it's a ton of people. There's my entire generation wants the police defunded. I think that's where Christians are a little bit not in tune with the times is that my an entire generation is coming up that hates good because of this public school system and of all these other things that they yeah. literally are going to defund the entire police. That's right. what they want in well, my lifetime. Yeah. Here's the good news. One of, part of the good news of common grace 
is that God has built reality into the systems of reality. And so, you know what's going to happen if they defund the police? Anarchy. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to realize it's bad in about 20 minutes. Like, now, really sad things are going to happen. A lot of people are going to have their property destroyed. A lot of people are going to die. Um, Things are going to get a lot worse, especially for vulnerable inner city people, Mm -hmm. especially people in the underclass, especially black and brown people, right? It's a, it's a terrible, inhumane, horrific idea, but they're going to learn quick. They're going to learn real fast that that's a naive and dumb idea. But, but let me say this, though, too. You, you say that, but like, for example, one of the leaders in Madison of Young, Black, and Talented, who's a su- super radical, like she's like as far at the left as you can imagine, right? Some of the people from that organization were caught on video cameras teaching young people how to break into the jewelry store downtown. Okay, so this is... They're, they're out there, okay? They're not just peaceful protesters, right? When she was literally asked on a PBS show, what do you mean by defund the police? Or 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 back back during Tony Robinson, like, get the police out of our neighborhoods? They were like, do you literally want no police in your neighborhoods? Like, ever? Like, what happens when there's a homicide? She's like, no, what I mean is, here's what we mean by we don't want the police in our neighborhoods. If you're white and you live in Wanakee, police don't drive by your house four times a day. Like they're not really there. You don't. You don't. You're not constantly interacting with them. You don't see them all the time. If you call the police, they drive over to your house. But they're not. They're not this imposing presence. They're like. In, she's like in black communities. They're always trying to be our. They want to like be our friends now. They're like community policing. So now they're there more, and they want to be our friends. But these are the people who have the right to throw us in prison, accuse us of crimes, get us in the legal system. They're not our friends. We want our neighborhoods to be like white people's neighborhoods where there aren't, they're not there all the time. Now, listen, I'm just going to tell you, if police started showing up in my neighborhood more to be our friends, I would not like that. I do not. I don't want to interact with the police. I don't want them around. I And, and listen, I'm super pro-police. I love police. I If I could do five more careers in my life, one of them, I would be a police officer. Like, But no free citizen wants police humming around unless they live in a war zone. Mm-hmm. You know, but is that and that's so like, what I have to? You know, what I'm saying is, is what, so I just want to make sure I, I make the correct point here. So this woman who's like literally like we don't want police, when she's like acts publicly, what do you really mean by that slogan? Her answer is we basically want to be policed like white people, which is not crazy. It may be a bad but it, idea. But it is. It might it be a bad idea crazy. for their neighborhoods, but it's not like yeah. this crazy notion of like you know the you know we don't want any police at all ever for any reason. Even when there's homicides, we don't want to, right. we'll, we'll bring the dead body to you. I mean, that's not what they mean. Yeah. But they got to be careful because young people will hear that and be like, no police ever. And I, but I, right, but, but I also, on the, the other hand, of those black leaders, it's, I mean, well, I, I, yeah, the way that they talk is, right. yeah. Yeah. I, so that, I think that's actually one of the big differences Christians can, can be than secular leaders is I think, I think Christians should be specific about what they mean. Mm-hmm. I think if, I think, I think a Christian yeah. black leader, should not, I, I realize there's some presumption here, but I, I think I can say this objectively. I think a Christian black leader who thinks that policing is not going well should stand up and say, here's what I think we should change about policing and be specific. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and honestly, though, I, like, I feel like there's a couple of there's a there's a retired professor from from UW, whatever, whatever last names is Billings. She has a hyphen last name. But like when when she I've heard her talk a couple of times, she tends to be more like this is specifically what I mean. And I think that yeah. kind of responsible leadership is really important. But I think you see yeah. that responsible leadership from people like Alex, Alex G. I think Marcus Allen has done that. I think Henry Sanders has tried to do that. I think that there are Christian black leaders yeah. that are trying to be specific. But the problem is, is that 
there's a lot of irresponsible yeah. leadership on the left and the right. Some of that on the left is black and some of it is vague and sloganeering to whip people up who are angry. And I do think that yeah. that's very irresponsible. Yeah. And it can drown out the responsible ones. That's who... the big danger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that it right. drowns out the responsible people. Just like, just, just like the riots yeah. drowned out the protests, even though in yeah. terms of size, proportionately, the peaceful protests were much, were truly much larger than the rioting, mm-hmm. right. but the rioting is so loud that it, it sucks up all the oxygen. Right. And, and like, what is, what is the news going to report on a protest or, you know, they can, they could say, you know, they're protesting, but there's so much more event. There's so much more eventful to, to report on the rioting and that will get your ratings up. So that's why it sounds louder as well. Yeah. And I, even, even with that, I think for Christians too, is I think you should be careful how you protest because I don't think all protests are created equal. Mm-hmm. So for example, when I went to the um, African-American council of churches protests to like two Sundays ago or three Sundays ago, um, there were chants, there were people, things were yelling, there were songs being sung, there were speeches being given. I don't agree with some of the policy or even some of the assumptions in some of the speeches given, but they weren't given irresponsibly and they were not given inflammatorily, right? Um, when I went to a Black Lives Matter march run by a Black Lives Matter organization, they were chanting things like, like pigs in a blanket, burn them on, like serve them on, like bacon, like that, like, kind of like violent, pretty hateful, pretty bigoted kinds of things. And if if you have that kind of protest and then there's a riot, I don't think you can say we had a peaceful protest. Those people chose to riot. If you were talking about how you want oh, the police right. dead okay. and then people go and break things and you're like, oh, how did that happen? I have no idea. That's very yeah. different than the black Christian pastors in a city leading a protest that is very prophetic and yet not violent or asking for violence or dehumanizing other people because you're protesting. And then somebody goes out and breaks something. I think then you can say that wasn't us and you're right. Mm -hmm. You know? So I think that, I I think not all protests are created equal. I think if you're a Christian, whether you're black or white or whatever, you may have the responsibility to to be heard and to be there, but you also have the, the responsibility to use the means that Jesus has opened to you, which doesn't include dehumanizing other people. It's true that without justice, in the long term, you can't have peace. Mm-hmm. It's also true that without peace, you can't have justice. Because, because anarchy yeah. always leads to tyranny. Always. And so it's true that without justice, you can't have peace. But if when you chant, no justice, no peace, you mean we are going to like riot, we're going to be violent. What happens right. is it breaks down the interrelational trust of the society. Mm-hmm. People trust each other right. less. They turn to somebody strong to protect them, which always leads to tyranny, which leads yeah. to less righteousness. And, and so therefore less justice and less peace. So agitating against peace is a, it, like it's, you know, when Jesus says those who live by the sword will die by the mm-hmm. sword. Yeah. I mean, that's why King was so focused on this. Like if you can't create peace and justice, with violence. Yeah. You can stop a certain kind of injustice with violence. You can, you can kill someone else to protect yourself with violence. Violence has just uses, but what it will not produce is shalom. It will not right, produce peace in the presence of justice. It cannot do that. feels like violence. It's just uses for violence seem fewer than like just uses for like peace. And like to like, 
you, you, there's not going to be many right. situations in our lives where we're going to be like, okay, like John said something that really pissed me off. So now I have to go stab him. Like, uh, no, I have to go like peacefully talk to him. There's going to be way more of that than me just beating the crap out of John, which I could do because <laughs> I'm stronger than him. And yeah, I'm I more mean, especially when Jesus is so clear about loving your enemy, forgiving them, blessing those who persecute you, considering it an honor to be beaten in Jesus name in Acts four. I mean, you just you cannot. I mean, I know some leaders try to say, you know, well, Jesus turned over tables and whipped stuff. And like, what is that if not looting? That's big difference is to the temple of God, the, the home of God himself. He was flipping those tables, not Target. Not freaking State yeah, Street. Well, yeah, but but I think that is imp- I think it's important. Yeah, but he still was he still was attacking a injustice in a particular place, right? And he and he was attacking private businesses to do it. Like I mean, there are some similarities, right. but see, the problem is when you get angry, you look at you see a similarity, you make an association in your mind, and you think it's, everything's legitimate, right? But yeah, anger I mean, is he a. He, yeah. Jesus didn't destroy anybody's livelihood. You know no, I mean? right. He, like, it was to better. People had to pick to, up afterwards yeah. and regather some pigeons, but he didn't like right. destroy somebody's mm-hmm. livelihood, which writers have yeah. done. And and so like you got to be careful. But the thing is, is like yeah, Jesus did that one time. It's true. There's one time, place in the whole of Scripture where Jesus like did something that looked like relatively violent. Didn't apparently hit anyone or hurt anyone, but did some crazy stuff, right? But you also got to temper that with all the rest of his teaching about loving your enemy and, you know, all those other things. And I think Christians, but I've seen this. I've seen a lot of African-American Christians and biracial Christians and and Christians who are personally connected with the stories of of black people in America just refrain from the excesses. Mm -hmm. And on one level, you could say, well, you know, that's a small favor because, you know, the the people with the excesses are loud. Well, yeah, but these people still acted with virtue in the presence of a lack of it. When they still felt anger, they still tempered it with discipline and obedience to God. I think that's a beautiful thing. And if they aren't able to grab the microphone and overcome, you know, the the wicked gainsayer, well, that maybe they couldn't do that. I don't know. But I, I think God is still pleased with them behaving differently, differently as a believer. There were also black Christians who showed up for cleanup the day after mm-hmm. State Street got trashed. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there are people doing that. So I just want to be, I, I think it's, it behooves us to be really careful about being racist in our attributions, right? Of like the, all black people are this way, white people are that way. And, right. And just say, look, Christians should behave in this way. And, but I think it's also important to recognize that the, the options that Jesus leaves open to us in terms of action are very mm-hmm. broad. There are a lot of things you can do as a Christian in this moment. You can go protest. You can choose not to protest. You can, so like, for example, one of my daughters, both, went to the protest on Sunday and cooked cookies for the police because she ran into a mom who had biracial children who she did that with her kids before they went to the protest. They baked cookies for the police, delivered them to individual police homes for their families with a note, encouraging them in the work they do as police officers. And then they went to a protest, part of which was we may need to make some changes in how we police. Mm -hmm. Right. And they were like, I believe in both of those things. Mm -hmm. And the thing is you could have done one without the other and been a Christian. You could have neither. There's a lot left to conscience for mm-hmm. Christians, especially in these kinds of endeavors. Yeah, different people with different strengths are going to have different callings in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and frankly, if I was black, what I would feel like I pro- what I probably would do in this situation is different than the situation I'm in. Mm-hmm. 
Like, yeah. there, there are things about my life, like, that dictate what I can and can't do. And I'm not going to get angry about those providences. This is where I am. So given the situation I'm in, what's the best thing that I can do is my question. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then I, I'm probably not, I'm probably gonna be wrong half the time, but, but I'm going to fail in the right direction to use the language I've tried to popularize. Yeah. John, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think that's, I think that's right on. Christians yeah. need to remember that for all the excitement of agitation and protest, the world is made better by people day in and day out doing what mm-hmm. is good. Yeah. Amen. On the microcosm, Amen. like yeah. in your family, in your own personal life, but also like just at your job and in the interactions that you have, when people are moral and spiritual, they affect so many different things. Mm-hmm. If you if you get on social media, you're like, I'm for this policy. It's that's not worthless, but a, but I would rather have a good man who's not woke mm-hmm. in my society than that person. Because the the a person who is good, like Jesus is good, they're godly, they're doing a thousand different yeah. things that are improving the world and the life, all the lives around them in their own life. And they're mm-hmm. producing so much they don't even realize. Whereas one jerk who like tweets even if it's the right thing right. to social social like whatever on Twitter. That is that that does so little good. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what yeah. I would tell Christians is be as woke as you can. I mean, most of us are busy and we can't be like academic wokies. Right? It's the reason undergrads are so woke is because they have so much freaking mm-hmm. free time. <laughs> right. Right. It's like most of us have things we're doing. We can't change our nomenclature every day and get all the subtleties of your language and read all the little books that people write. And like that's that's completely unreasonable to expect people to do that. Right. But what we what we can do is we could be godly in our lives. And what that's going to naturally do is make you less racist. And it's also going to get you more attuned to the if there is structural racism in things you're interacting with, you'll start to see Mm -hmm. that you'll be like. This situation isn't right. This isn't good. There's something icky here. And well, great. We'll fix that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of that. And that gets back right. to the whole Jordan Peterson. Right. Learn, you know, the things that call out to get you. your own life straight before you try to fix the world. Yeah. If people would get their own life straight and that their, their family life straight. And then that would fix straight, the world. And then, right. That, not only would yeah. they be fixing the world, but they'd be growing in competence right. To know how to fix the next bigger right. thing. And, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's exactly. why the whole wokey 20-year-old thing is such a terrible thing. They want to fix the federal government, which is literally the thing they are least competent mm-hmm. to fix. While they're going out and getting trashed every single weekend and having sex with every human that they look at. And taking right. seven years to get through college. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, obviously that's a caricature, but but that's the that's the thing to look yeah. at. It's like learn how to make your bed, learn how to get your life in order, get good grades in your classes, learn how to learn things form five really deep friendships, mm-hmm. like get to the yeah. weight you want to get to and the health you want to get to learn to control your diet, get a budget, learn how to grocery mm-hmm. shop. You know what I mean? Like do all that stuff first, get a job where people feel like you're actually producing something well enough to employ you. That, that kind of thing. And then if you want to judge yeah. people like, well, judge the things you've done. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't like to judge business owners because I haven't, I just started a business two years ago. I partly did it just so I wanted to know what it was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because I was thought that doesn't look that hard. But everybody tells me it's really hard. You know, like, so I think that 
I think that that advice is good for Christians. And I think it's very fitting with what Jesus teaches about like looking at the plank in your own eye before you think you can take out at the speck in your brother's yeah. eye. That's not just true for like literally the person across the table from you. That's true of the society and the structures of the society and all the other businesses and everything that's in your society. Like you think you know what's wrong with them. You don't even know what's wrong with you. Right. right? And I think that when I don't, I think when I, when I really sort through the racism that's in me, I might be able to help you with the racism that's in you and my kids. And maybe someday God will trust me with a larger platform where I might be helpful. Right. right. And even as you as like a leader of a church doing that encourages the people like me and John mm-hmm. to be like, okay, shoot, I got to look at myself too. Like, cause like, I don't know. It's just, you know, encouraging to see a leader yeah. to do that. And I think, yeah. So you're not going to do justice very well or love mercy very deeply. If you don't walk humbly with your God mm-hmm. and yeah. the God, that God tells us to take our speech and our actions very seriously. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. there's so much flippancy. Yeah. I just, I, th- I think it's, I think it's really sad, but I, but that, also you gotta remember that's part of youth. I mean, we worship youth, but there's no group of human beings in the history of the world more likely to be wrong than the young and less disciplined than the young. You, you can expect young people to act in undisciplined, ridiculous ways. <laughs> and you've got to encourage them without worshiping them and acting like they're right. And that's one of the things that's really that's really difficult in um, the black movement in Madison right now is that there are these leaders that are gathering youth to like agitate them to argue for policies, mm-hmm. and then if then if the city doesn't change their policies, then we don't care about the youth. And it's it's actually a really poisonous and pernicious dynamic right now. Yeah, because um, some of the African American leaders in Madison they're trying to do good stuff, but they're not radicals. When they don't do what the radicals want, the radicals have co-opted the, a lot of young voices. And so then what they say is, well, it's too bad so-and-so doesn't care about the young people. It doesn't include the young people. It doesn't, doesn't – and it's just – it's okay. a nasty – but, like, yeah. why do we worship the young? The young are foolish, right? That's why we make them learn to make their beds mm-hmm. and get jobs before we – I mean, that's why you can't even be in public office until you're 25 and according to the United States Constitution, right? Right. Well, Somehow and young people got to be willing – yeah. Young people got to be willing to shut up and listen as well. It's a two-way thing. And so I yeah. I agree. It's good for them to bring the heat. Why is this like this? But then they got to right. listen. Yeah. yeah. So with that being said, um, yeah, we're basically done. I think if you listen to this and you have more questions or you didn't like something that was said, um, email, email us. It's on the show notes, optivenetwork at gmail.com. Email Nick, email John, email me. I probably won't have, I, I don't really email me. Uh, email those guys because I won't have many good answers. But um, if you have any problems or, or whatever, you just want to talk about something. Um, and then also, shout out Simple Trees, Nick's, uh, Nick's company that he was talking about, right? Simple Trees, is that what it's called? Yeah, it's a subsidiary of Gibson Enterprises. If you if you have any trees you want chopped down, summertime, baby. Yeah. Call I Nick. Do. I remove He's... trees, but I only do jobs that are simple. Though I am yes. somebody is trying to get me to do a hundred foot, like a like the one of the biggest ash trees I've ever seen. It's unbelievable. But I also have a business called Kidfish, which is a subsidiary of Gibson Enterprises, which is <laughs> um, a fishing guide service that takes mostly kids fishing, mainly for panfish. 
So it's because, because like if you're a parent and you want to take your kid fishing, and you're like, well, how do I do that? Do I get a guide? Well, guide's five hundred dollars. What to take your kid fishing for two hours, right? So we're trying to. Jude and I are trying to fill that. I'm doing it with my twelve year old son, and we're trying to fill that hole between somebody who you don't have a buddy who can take you and your kids fishing, but you also don't want to pay five hundred dollars for a guide because your kids not even be interested for more than thirty minutes. With me, you can pay me a little bit of money. When your kid gets tired, I take you back to the dock. We settle up, and then Jude and I go back out fishing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Boom. There you go. Free so, advertising. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for sponsoring uh, this episode. Yeah, you're Yeah, thank you for sponsoring this episode with zero dollars. <laughs> um, anyways, besides that, that's it for today's podcast. Uh, make sure to follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple. Give us that five stars. Everybody who listens to this one, give us that five stars. You know the drill. Um, yeah, I think that's all I usually say. Smash end, right? that like button. A- Smash that like button, hit subscribe, and we will be back soon with some content. If you have any questions that you want us to discuss, email optimnetwork at gmail.com. So thank you guys for listening. We will catch you guys in the next one. Goodbye.